Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, celebrating 20 years of bringing the outdoors to Colorado radio, here's Terry Wickstrom. All right, we are back, and for those of you that aren't used to hearing us at 11 o'clock, our normal show time is 9 to 11, so I'd be headed out the door towards the water somewhere at this this time normally. But for the next few months, we are going to be from 10 to noon uh, to accommodate the golf show. And then when Broncos training camp starts, we will be moving back to our 9 o'clock spot. We were talking with Nate Zielinski, and we're going to go right back to the phones. And, Nate, I want to talk fishing. I was great on turkey. And at the end of this segment, I've got an assignment for you in turkey hunting that I'm going to ask you about. So don't let me get you off without it. But before, no we, get, before we get to the fishing, um, you and I are putting our ice fishing gear away right now. But... It's not too early for people to start thinking about trips for next year. In fact, there's an opportunity for them to win a trip with you and I next December ice fishing. Absolutely. You know, Terry, I'm actually sitting here, and a lot of people, you know, say comments. They they look at the the machine that I use on the ice, and my daily ice machine is a, is a Honda Rubicon with tracks, all from Sun. They set it up, and I'll tell you what, there is not a machine built for an ice fisherman more than one of the units, like a, like a Honda, a Polaris, a Can-Am. You put a set of tracks on that, these things go anywhere. I mean, Slush. You know, everybody talks about the slush at Granby. You have slush problems getting stuck on your snowmobile, no problem on the tracks. You have problems with glare ice, 100% frozen. Everybody's like, man, my snowmobile overheats. You know what doesn't overheat? A quad of tracks. And those are the type of things that Sun can set you up with. And next year, when they win this trip, we're going to take them out on this tracked ATV to have a great day of fishing with you and I. And the way they went, I'm, I'm going to tease them this time because there's a way you can enter directly. But I know that Sun has posted it on their Facebook page. So what I'm going to tell you folks right now is go to Sun. It's Sun ENT on Facebook for Sun Enterprises. Look for the post, and you can enter now till September, and you might get to go on a fishing, an ice fishing trip with Nate and I. So go do that. All right, Nate, what's going on right now, though? The ice, you know what I'm finding out is there's almost nowhere is there ice fishing left. It's going away quickly. If we're not open water fishing like we're here in the Front Range, we're in transition. In fact, Spinny Mountain opens tomorrow. There's a lot of open water, Terry. You know, with that said, make sure everybody gets their new fishing license. They expire tonight at midnight. So uh, make sure you get your new fishing license. And with that said, exactly, Spinning Mountain opens tomorrow, uh, which brings on some incredible fishing. I mean, you're going to have opportunity at gangbuster fishing for rainbows and cut bows as those fish are doing their kind of false spawn on the shoreline. So the rainbow trout fishing this time of year is incredible. And I'll tell you, we say this every couple of years, but maybe one and Every four to seven years do we get this early ice off. And I'll tell you what, our northern pike spawn middle of April. It's every year, sometime between that 12th and the 20th of April, our pike go into a spawn. And I'll tell you what, pike are not like a lot of fish that get vulnerable on the spawn. The spawn on a pike, they could care less about presentation. You can put a jig right in front of a pike. You can hit them on the head. You can touch them, and they do not open their mouth to take a bait. So these pike get tough during the spawn. But I'll tell you what, a pre-spawn pike, absolutely gorgeous, and they feed heavy. Everybody remembers that giant pike that Will Dykstra caught last year at Spinney. That fish was probably weighed somewhere in that 36 to 38-pound range. Would have uh, would have smoked the current state record on, on size. 
they will put that fish back, but that was a pre-spawn pike. And last year, they only had a couple days on those pre-spawn fish. This year, we're going to have almost two weeks on those pre-spawn pikes. So I'll tell you, as a, as a pike angler here in Colorado, I couldn't be more excited about spinning, opening up tomorrow. It's going to be a, it's going to be a phenomenal year up there, especially getting those couple weeks on those pre-spawn fish. And then, generally speaking, just getting the lakes open water like that up there, having an early ice off like we're having, um, it just, generally speaking, makes for a great year of fishing. Brings a lot of oxygen, brings low stress on the fish, uh, and just brings a good year of fishing. So we're really excited about the mountain lakes opening up. And I'll tell you, as a walleye angler, bringing it down here in the front range, that bite is just phenomenal. I mean, Jackson Reservoir is fishing incredible for walleyes right now. So Jackson State Park, that bite is phenomenal. Uh, Pueblo is fishing very good. Cherry Creek is just off the hook. We have our Walleye Insanity event on April 14th. I encourage everybody to sign up for that. It's a great team walleye tournament, $175 to enter. It's affordable. And I promise you, you will learn more than walleye fishing, fishing a tournament like that. Uh, huge payouts. Again, we encourage everybody to go to tightlineoutdoors.com, check out Walleye Insanity. But with that coming up in two weeks, a lot of guys have been out there fishing Cherry Creek. Uh, and I'll tell you, that bite is phenomenal. We're seeing a lot of 30 to 40 fish days at Cherry Creek and seeing some big fish mixed in there. So that bite is hot. That's a daytime bite. We're just trolling lead core. It's a, it's a phenomenal bite. A lot of people saw the video we did. It's on our Facebook page, Tightline Outdoors. Uh, when we teach you how to fish lead core. But that bite's on. And the night bite at Chatfield is phenomenal. Uh, last night, I know a good friend of ours, Ramon, he got a 27-inch goose. The night before that, in that kind of blizzardy condition, uh, I got a 25 and just a pile of other fish. So uh, the walleye are absolutely going strong right now in the front range and all over the front range. Now, the Jackson Lake, and maybe you want to get away from the crowd a little bit. It's not going to be quite as popular as the Metro Lakes. Are you using similar techniques? How are they catching the fish at Little Jackson? Bit of everything at Jackson. You know, there's a trolling bite going on with pranks. There's a, there's a live bait bite going on as well as a jig bite. You know, Jackson Lake, you know, people talk about that as a, as a fishery, and everybody kind of gets uh, can somewhat dis- you know, deterred by that because they say there's no structure. Um, there is some structure features on that body water, but the biggest thing is when you have minimal structure, the fish gravitate to any structure they do have. So everybody thinks that, oh, there's not much structure, so the fish don't do that. You're just going to, you know, search around for them. When in reality, you have a a small one or two foot contour change, and those walleyes just gravitate to it. So with that being said, you know, if you do find those small structure changes, those fish will gravitate to it, and that jig bite is on. Same with a live bait bite on that. And the fish that are out suspending, uh, you know, are cruising around on the flats, those are the fish you're going to target with crankbait. So a lot of opportunity out there and a lot of really good fish out there for sure. One, one thing, one bite I want to talk to you about real quick before I let you go. And that's the fact. I wrote an article about this in the, in my Denver Post column just a few weeks ago. As the ice goes away, as we saw a little earlier on the Front Range, that trout bite by shore, and it's still going on here because the water is still fairly cool on the Front Range, but as that water, ice goes away and the water's cool, there is great trout fishing, for, especially for shore anglers that maybe don't have a boat and they just want to get out and catch fish. You can do that on the Front Range, but now as the ice is going off the mountains, it's going to be more phenomenal at elevations because these trout will be shallow there now too. The, the trout bite is on, like you said, Terry. And I actually I swung near shore the other day uh, out there fishing. Uh, I should walleye fishing. I swung in right by the kind of the north shore chat field where the boat dock is, um, and instantly while trolling hooked up to two or three anglers. So it, it is crazy how the, I mean, the trout bite is going first certain uh, anytime you get near shore there.
You know, I I did uh, I did go out and check some ponds yesterday, Nate, and what I did find out was that I'm not a very good fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work out well for you there, Jerry? Well, instead of going after the trout, which I knew would be biting, we had this huge front that came through with snowed up by where I live. So I went out to a pond that, you know, I would tell people, normally go out there, you'll catch some bass and panfish. And, of course, I caught none. It's one I hadn't fished before. I tried. Then I went to one that I knew had large panfish. If I would have followed my own advice, I could have caught fish. I know I could have. But I, I, I want to use that, and I used it earlier in the show, and I want to say it real quick while you're on. We don't always make the right decision either. Sometimes, you know, we've got great contributors to the show like yourself. We've got... Chad and Brad and Bernie and Will and Ronnie and we between us we ca- we harvest we catch a lot of fish we've we've all been very successful anglers. However, uh, people go out they hear us talking about it they get frustrated. We don't always make the right decision and there's times when we get frustrated too. You have to be willing to stick with it. Oh, absolutely. You know, you you can't ever grow unless you uh, unless you have those failures. I can tell you, you know, growing up I, uh, you know, my dad got me into fishing hard, but by no means did I grow up with, you know, uh, a tournament pro as a, as, a, as a family member. The biggest thing is a lot of people fail on the water and they leave home and you don't take anything from it. If you don't take anything from the failures, you're going to continue to fail. But every time you go out and you have that rough day, instead of just telling yourself the fish aren't biting, learn from it. Ask yourself, why didn't they bite? Is it just flat out I had a pressure change and the fish were negative? Was I not on the fish? Was my presentation wrong? But if you can learn something from the failures, I can tell you right now, that is 100% what led me to where I'm at today. As a guide, as a tournament angler, everything that I've done is from failures. Every time I get off the water, I don't catch stuff. I just tell myself, hey, that's, you know, that's unacceptable. Even though it happens, it 100% happens. But I tell myself, okay, why did that happen? And I ask myself, what was wrong? Did I not deliver the bait correctly? Did I have the wrong bait? Was it pressure? But again, I learn from the mistakes where every time I take something away from the water on a good day and on a bad day, I always take something from the experience. And taking that small thing builds your arsenals, and that's what makes you successful the next time you get on the water. Nate, we got to run if people want to find you. Absolutely. You know, go to our Facebook page, Tightline Outdoors. We've got a lot of information, a lot of videos, a lot of tips there, but everything revolves around our website. Go to the tightlineoutdoors.com. Again, we've got Walleye Insanity coming up here April 14th at Cherry Creek. That's going to be a great fight, so we encourage you to register for that tournament. We've got Bass Obsession up right now, so you can register for those tournaments. And as always, a guide trip. You want to have a phenomenal day of conventional tackle or fly fishing at Spinney? Put us up. You want to have a great day of walleye fishing across the front range? Hit us up there. So, guys, we've got a lot of stuff happening. But, again, go to tightlineoutdoors.com. We'd love to get you out in the water. All right, Nate, we'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. We're going to go right to the phones. And uh, joining us, and I hope I get this right, it's the Colorado Tick-Borne Disease Awareness Association. Is that right, Monica? That's right, Terry. Thank you. Monica White's joining us. And Monica, you know, um, we actually talked about this a little bit in the first hour with... um, one of my fishing contributors, Brad Peterson, because he had Lyme disease. And we'll get into more of some of what he said along with what you have to say later. But 
Ticks, I don't think people, especially in Colorado, we don't hear about it as much as we should, but we should. And ticks are really can be um, can really be an issue. First of all, um, how many different diseases can you get from ticks? You know, nationwide, uh, there's about 20 different tick-borne diseases that have been identified um, occurring in the U.S. that can affect people and, and their pets. Um, and sometimes wildlife. Now, you you are a great example, and I think it probably is what inspired you to do the work you're doing, but your family was personally affected. Tell people about that. We were. You know, uh, we went many years undiagnosed with um, Lyme disease and multiple other tick-borne infections that were acquired through the bite of a tick, and Living in Colorado, we were very isolated from knowing about the risk that a tick bite can have and the diseases that they can transmit. Um, as a professional wildlife biologist, I, I never got the training um, about tick bite prevention. And I didn't know that, you know, not only that there were multiple diseases, but that not all ticks are created equal in what they can transmit. So um, it had a devastating effect on my entire family for years of debilitating illness and ongoing problems. Well, and a very similar story from Brad Peterson, who was on with us. He caught he had Lyme disease, and he was probably very similar to what happened with your family. And this happens to a lot of people because a lot of people don't even remember being bit. Now we'll talk about tick removal and finding ticks later on, but but and a lot of times the symptoms are mild to start with from a lot of these diseases, aren't there? That's that's right. You know, a, lo- a lot of the initial symptoms, although some can be dramatic in individual cases, um, a lot of people that are bitten about fifty percent. Um, or even less, recall having been bitten by a tick. Um, the ticks that can transmit a number of these diseases are very small, and in the life stages that they can uh, impact you are, are very difficult to detect on the body. Um, flu-like symptoms can easily be um, misdiagnosed, especially if you don't know that you've been bitten by a tick or you don't realize that you have been um, exposed in tick habitat, depending on which part of the country you're in or, or what hiking trail you might be on. Well, you know, and that's a great point because as outdoor enthusiasts, we don't just recreate here in Colorado. We're the, we don't want to belittle the tick population in Colorado because certainly here, and it certainly can transmit diseases, but there are parts of the country where it's more prevalent and people probably are made more aware of it. But um, and but most outdoor enthusiasts travel too, and 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 they might be home from being on an outing for months before they realize they've got something, and they don't relate it to a tick bite. But what are you know? I know Lyme disease is one of the most uh, ones you hear the most about, and we don't know how much Lyme disease actually exists in Colorado ticks, but nationwide it's growing. It's the worst. Um, what are there some of the other diseases that maybe are more common even in Colorado? Right. You know, in Colorado, the the two uh, species that people most encounter are the Rocky Mountain wood tick and the American dog tick. Um, There's uh, a handful of other um, ticks that that people and pets encounter less frequently, but can also carry diseases that can be very serious. Um, Colorado tick fever is the most commonly reported disease in Colorado. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, tularemia, Q fever. Um, you know, there's there's another uh, a lot of bacterial based um, 
diseases that people can encounter, tick-borne relapsing fever as well, that if caught early and treated early, people do very well. The problem is recognizing the diseases, these flu-like symptoms, headaches, swollen lymph nodes, night sweats, um, chills, fever, those kind of symptoms um, often get dismissed as flu or viral-like illnesses and, and aren't caught early enough. Well, you, you were telling me, and I read something about this prior to talking to you just a, a few days ago, there's a tick-borne illness that makes you allergic to red meat. Yes. Um, there's a growing incidence of um, uh food allergy occurring from a tick bite. Um, this is being attributed to the Lone Star tick, which is is not known to have an endemic population in Colorado, but but does come into Colorado on people and pets that travel. Um, the bite of this tick can actually cause um, what, their, what is appearing to be a lifelong allergy to meat, uh, resulting in anaphylaxis for some people, which is very serious. No, I probably wouldn't be able to have enough red wine with my red meat to overcome that. I'd have to give it up. <laughs> but I mean, you think about how serious, you know, I, I don't want to be a little joke, but it, we can joke about it. But many of these tick-borne illnesses are not only disabilitating, they can be uh, life-threatening. Yes, and, and that's the problem. You know, prevention is so important because, um, you know, even even one infection can be uh uh, debilitating or deadly, depending on the infection and how soon it's diagnosed and treated properly. Let's talk um, a little bit about um, some of those things. First of all, if I am I, I don't always know I'm bitten. Everybody thinks about the ticks that embed themselves in you, and you find one stuck in you or your pet. Are all ticks like that? Um, you know, we've we've got two. Uh, primary kinds of ticks in, in Colorado, the, the hard body tick, the one that you would find embedded if you're lucky enough um, to find embedded, or actually, if you're lucky enough, you never have one embedded, but you'll find those, you can remove those. There's also a soft body tick that carries um, a disease called tick-borne relapsing fever. And these little ticks tend to hang out, um, they live in the nests of rodents, and in Colorado um, and a lot of the western states can be found in rustic uh, lodging-type situations like vacation cabins or hunting cabins, uh, places that may have been closed up for the winter and may have had a squirrel get in the attic. Um, these little ticks can come out, bite during the night, and then retreat back to their nest. And so people never know they've been bitten. Um, and, and so recognizing the diseases even if you haven't recognized that you've been bitten by a tick, is very important. All right. Now, let's. Where, where in Colorado, where anywhere, what kind of habitat am I most likely to run into ticks of any kind here in Colorado? Yes. Well, people that are um, recreating in the outdoors in Colorado, um, and even in their own backyards, depending on the habitat that they have on their property, um, brushy, shrubby areas, uh, areas of tall grass, areas along trails, uh, creeks, um, tend to be the most popular. Ticks actually can detect um, body heat and odor, vibrations, and CO2. And so when they're actively questing for their meal, they will hang out on the edge of these um, edges of brush and, and grasses um, in on logs and, and uh, wait for people or pets or wildlife to walk by so that they can latch on. So 
walking to the centers of trails um, as opposed to brushing up against the edges of trails is a way to prevent a contact with the tick. Now, um, we'll get to some more prevention in just a minute, but um, so when I, is there a time of the year? Now, you kind of told us where we might run into it. Are ticks around year-round? Are they more prevalent certain times of year? Ticks can be active year-round nationwide, Uh, but the most prevalent time when people start interacting with ticks is when temperatures start to warm and more people are headed in the outdoors and adults that have not fed from the year before are, are looking for their last blood meal. And we also get a boom in the number of ticks as the nymphs that have molted from the year before as larvae are coming out and looking for their blood meal as well. So as temperatures start to warm, spring, summer, midsummer, and then again in the fall when hunters are heading out, the adult ticks are, are again looking for their last blood meal and there's another peak in activity. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to start talking about a little bit of prevention and what to do if you think you've been bit. What are some of the things I can do to prevent myself from a tick bite? You know, how you dress is so important. Wearing permethrin-treated clothing, which actually kills the ticks, as opposed to just repelling, um, is is really important. Long sleeves, long pants, uh, tucking your, your pants into socks and your shirt into into your pants wearing repellents on the skin and making sure that the repellents that you're using are labeled for ticks, um, wearing light-colored clothing, staying to the center of hiking trails, avoiding sitting on logs or against trees where ticks can be um, lying in wait or near small mammal uh, nests, and making sure you're protecting your pets too, because even if you're doing everything for yourself, your pets are, are getting a lot more exposure when they're out on the trails with you. Um, and they can bring ticks into the home that can then put other inhabitants at risk. Now, you mentioned to have tick uh, DEET, of course, is one, but you also said there's some other products on the market that work well for ticks. There are some other products that the CDC recommends, and they include picaridin and lemon eucalyptus oil products in addition to the DEET. Now, um, I know you, I'm sure you have a website, and a lot of this is information is available, but we'll get that from you in just a minute. But if you do everything you can to try to prevent it, what, what should I do if I find a tick on me, either embedded or crawling? You know, no matter how we, we try to prevent, sometimes prevention fails. And the sooner a tick is properly removed, the less opportunity there is for a tick to transmit disease. So doing a thorough tick check um, throughout your time in the outdoors and when you return home from the outdoors, um, If you find a tick that is embedded, um, removing that tick with fine-nosed tweezers, grasping as close to the skin as possible, and pulling straight out. You don't want to um, squeeze or twist or crush the tick because that can result in um, a higher risk of transmission from the pathogens that the the tick is carrying, the microbes that the tick is carrying in its midgut can can get into the wound or onto your fingers. Now, if, if, um, if I find a tick, whether embedded or not, it's probably important for me to save it in case I get symptoms, isn't it? You know, if the tick is not embedded, that's your choice. Um, if the tick is embedded, saving the tick is very important. Um, you can have it tested right away, or you can put it in a Ziploc bag and throw it in the freezer to save for testing later. Talking to a physician... Um, you know, you never want to re- wait on results for a tick um, to see your physician if you're experiencing illness. 
But having that um, information to know what kind of tick you're bitten by can narrow down um, the possible diseases that your doctor may consider in a diagnosis if you become ill. Um, it also gives you a starting place with your physician to have your tick tested um, to know what what your next steps might be because each disease has um, different uh, presentation, different risk, and some can be treated with medications and, and viral illnesses cannot but may need some palliative care. Now, one thing I'll advise people, as soon as you get some kind of symptoms, if you think you may be exposed to a tick, make sure you inform your doctor because they may not think of that. That does not first thing in their mind. Last thing, um, Monica, please tell us if you've got a website and how people can get more information. We do. We're at www.coloradoticks.org, and we have information um, about the ticks, the diseases, prevention, uh, tick testing sites, and information for both physicians and patients. All right, Monica, we're out of time. In fact, we're over time, but I think this is an important topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. It's just so important. I appreciate it, Terry. You bet. Thank you. That's Monica from Colorado Tick-Borne Diseases. Terry Works from Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. We're going to go right to the phones now. And joining us from the Shiloh House is Steve Cashman. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me on. Well, I think it's an important story. I, I think a lot of people have seen it in the news and I've already responded to it, but I think it's something worth letting the public know about on many levels, uh, Steve. First of all, before we even get to the story, give people just a, a real quick background on Shiloh House and what you do with these, what you do with these kids as far as the outdoors. Sure, thanks. Uh, we, uh, Shiloh House is a nonprofit here based out of Littleton. We have five different uh, campuses, um, and we work with abused, neglected, traumatized, and at-risk youth. Um, my part in all of this is uh, I uh, am the program director for the Littleton School, where we carry 40 to 60 kids. In the summers, we have 10 weeks off from school, and I'm in charge of the outdoor program. Um, and that gives us a chance to take the kids up to the mountains, um, hiking, fishing, doing some sightseeing. Um, a large majority of my kids have never been west of 470. Um, they come from a lot of uh, poverty-stricken houses. Uh, they haven't had these opportunities. And and because of that, a lot of them, the first time they've ever caught a fish or camped or hiked a trail is with you. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. I get the pleasure of probably seeing anywhere from 15 to 25 kids every summer catch their first fish. And that's probably one of the highlights of, of each day that I have with the kids. And and I'm really, if people have listened to this program, they know I'm evangelistic about getting youth into the outdoors because I think there's a culture and a value system that true outdoor enthusiasts share and a bonding that you can't develop any other way. You had a bit of a tragedy that stuck earlier, struck earlier this week. What happened? Yeah, I came into work on Wednesday morning. And uh, the kids are gone on spring break this week, so they don't have school. And I came in to do some, some work around here and uh, noticed a couple of things were out of place. And looking into it more, I discovered that somebody had broken into the school and stolen all of the outdoor equipment out of my office, um, which was a, a lot of baits and reels. I had a couple of drawers of a file cabinet just crammed full and uh, ran out to the shed because I was a little nervous 
that's where we keep a majority of our outdoor gear. And uh, shed door was open, and every single fishing rod, tackle box um, that we had was gone. Um, and I had worked, you know, I, this is my 17th year doing the outdoor program, and I started with a good friend of mine who still works here, Kevin Tracy. And it's been, a, you know, in the accumulating things over 17 years for these kids. We're a nonprofit, and we, we depend a lot on, on donations, and we do have a budget to help replace things. But it took a long time to get that many fishing poles for the kids and tackle and tackle boxes. And not only that, uh, at the end of every summer, we uh, we kind of culminate the summer in a camping trip for the kids, and they took tents and sleeping bags and sleeping pads and a, uh, uh, a big plastic uh Bin that I had that had the stove and the, the lanterns in and all the cookware. Um, they really cleaned us out. They took all the good newer sleeping bags and left all the old ones. But as far as fishing poles, they took every single one except some uh, closed face or uh, closed face rods with no reels that I had. Now, when you and I first talked, you were beside yourself. In fact, you had kind of um, you, on Wednesday you had kind of lost faith in human beings. Yeah, I went, I went home at lunch, uh, needed to take a break after finding all that, and kind of talked to my wife, and I was really upset with, uh, you know, how could people do this? These are kids. Um, and I was really, I was really kind of bummed out on, you know, mankind at the, at the moment. And, and you know, right now, I wanna, I'm want i going to make a step. We're going to run out of time here soon, so I want to make sure we get to the story and where we go from here. Sure, um, sure. You, um, a lot of people saw the story in the news. I made some phone calls to a lot of people. Um, but, but, and, and, of course, we had contact networking going on. Some of the major players in the outdoor community have stepped up. And, the, and to their credit, they want to remain anonymous, but they've really replaced. So it looks like your program is going to be able to go forward. And that really changed your view of the outdoor public, didn't it? Yeah, the, the, the outdoor community, you know, in, in the, this area, we're down in Littleton. And even we had people from as far as Aurora bring stuff in. It just, it, it shocked me. It made me feel a little guilty. I felt that down on, on, on everybody. Um, they've replaced... I'm almost back to right where I was before the the theft, um, and it just—I'm so thankful. It, I, I can't—I got to say I wasn't quite expecting the reaction that we got. Now we've only got about a minute left here, Steve. But here's what I'd like to say to people out there now too: Let's turn this from a tragedy into something that looks like you're going to recover from to a learning and growing moment. Um, you, you've got four or five campuses, and only one right now has this outdoor program. I want you to tell people how they can contact you if they want to support expanding, not only replacing whatever hasn't been replaced yet, but maybe expanding this to some of the other campuses. And let's get more and more kids outdoors. How would people get a hold of Shiloh House if they want to help grow this program? Well, you can drop off stuff at our, our corporate office, anything you'd like to donate, and that's at 6588. West Ottawa Avenue in Littleton, Colorado. And we're open Monday through Friday at 8 to 5. And uh, you can also go online and, and visit us at www.shilohouse.org slash donates. And if you could specify any donations that they go to the outdoor program, that would be greatly appreciated. And that website also teaches you a lot about Shiloh and who we are, the different services that we provide to kids. Steve, uh, great program. 
kudos to you for what you're doing to these kids. I'm so so proud of you. It means so much, and the outdoors are so important. And I'm glad to see that the culture and values of the outdoor system really shined and helped you out. But keep in touch with us if there's anything else that can be done. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. You bet. That's Steve from the Shiloh House. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Smoke Salmon. The secret is in the fire. We're going right to the phones so we can give plenty of time to one of our favorite contributors, Ronnie Castiglione. And Mr. Castiglione, you are appearing at the Sportsman's Warehouse today, I believe. Yeah, Terry, I'm actually calling you from the Sheridan Sportsman's Warehouse. We actually just wrapped up our presentation that we were doing down here this morning. But uh, in just a few hours, we're heading up north, and we will be at the Thornton Sportsman's Warehouse location. We're going to be doing a 2 o'clock presentation. It's myself and Mr. Chad Lachance from Fishel Vinker, and we'd appreciate some of the listeners were to come on by and say hi, Terry. All right, what are you covering in your seminars at 2? Uh, just kind of uh, gearing up for spring, getting ready for spring. We're talking uh, tackle, rods, reels, that kind of thing. And then we're going into some detail about different uh, different lakes, different species, kind of some of the way that we run patterns this time of year that it have produced. So we're just kind of covering a whole spring deal, Terry. Speaking of tackle, um, this is a subject that we don't always get full agreement with everybody we talk to, but you want to talk to about different fishing lines for different presentations. Yeah, Terry, it's that time of year where uh, people should be uh, spooling new line on a lot of their reels. And uh, it's definitely a question I get a lot on guide trips, Terry. You get out on the boat with me, and, you know, I've got, you know, 18 different rods rigged with all different lines and all that kind of stuff. And they're all sort of geared towards specific presentations. So there's certain things that I'm looking for for different lures, Terry. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to cover that and go through a few of the different scenarios, Terry. Well, take us through it. Excellent. Well, you know, one of the things that, well, here, here are the basics, Terry. When I'm thinking about fishing the line, the things that I want to consider as far as how it's going to affect the presentation I'm using. So, you know, the things I'm going to look at, Terry, is uh, strength and abrasion. That's going to be a concern for certain presentations, especially if I'm fishing up around heavy cover, around rocks, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, uh, casting distance is a big deal. And so I'm going to, I'm going to consider, uh, you know, which line is going to cast best for the presentation I'm using. Strength is also another very, very big deal that people don't think about a lot of times. There's certain presentations that I want the line to stretch with, and there's going to be other presentations that I don't want any stretch at all between me and the, and the lure. So those are the things that I'm kind of thinking about a lot of times, Terry. So, you know, to talk about a few of those and a few of the presentations that I utilize a lot, let's start off talking about crankbaits, Terry. Uh, this time of year, I do like getting out. I like cranking. It's one of the ways I like to produce fish this time of year. On crankbaits in general, Terry, I tend to like to throw fluorocarbon as the is the line that I, of choice on that. Now, I will say there's an exception, Terry, and that is when I get clients on the boat and they're not able to utilize a casting reel. If you're somebody who's just, you know, utilizing spinning reels, then the fluorocarbon is not going to be the best choice. Um, I may go with braid and a fluorocarbon leader on that scenario for a spinning rod. But if you're talking about me, myself, or somebody else that is, you know, capable of using a casting reel, then I'm definitely going to opt towards fluorocarbon more often than any other line, Terry. There's a few reasons there. I want it to have some stretch so that the fish have the ability to suck that presentation in when they come up behind it and they, they try to eat it. So I want there to be a little bit of stretch there so that they can do that. I also want the stretch when the fish gets close to the boat. Most crankbait 
baits have, you know, relatively small treble hooks on them, and you can have a fish that's just barely hooked. He gets up near the boat, and if you're using, utilizing something like a braided line for that crankbait and you don't have that stretch, then you're going to rip a lot of hooks as you go to land that fish, and you're going to end up losing a lot of fish. So fluorocarbon is definitely my choice. I also like the fluorocarbon for cranking because I like the, the abrasion resistance. Fluorocarbon is very dense, so I like to get those crankbaits down and grind the rocks there, and that fluorocarbon is going to come through that the best, in my opinion. Now, let's talk about jerkbait, Terry. It's a great time of year to be throwing jerkbaits, and a lot of people are out doing that. There's two lines that I'm going to utilize for that, Terry. More often than not, it's going to be a super line of some sort, be it uh, you know, like a fire line or a trialing braid or something like that. I'm going to put a fluorocarbon leader on that, Terry. Um, the reason I'm going to opt for the braid is because you know when I'm imparting the action that I want to to the jerkbait in order to get it to be real erratic, then I don't want a lot of stretch in between me and the bait, Terry. Um, I want all of that motion that I'm putting into the rod to get transferred to the lure, and then I also want to be able to sense those really, really light strikes you get this time of year on the jerkbait. Uh, you know, we talk about fishing jerkbaits a lot, and a lot of times it is the pause, Terry, that's going to get the strike. If you're utilizing a different line other than the super line, you may not feel a real light kick by a walleye that comes up and just barely bites it or a smallmouth that just barely gets that back hook. So that braid's going to transfer that through really, really good, Terry. Um, jigging is another big deal, Terry. So let's talk about finesse jigging. One of the ways we've been catching fish lately, especially up at Boyd, we've been out on Boyd a whole bunch, and the tube jig has really been the only thing that we've been getting bit on, Terry. It's been an ultra finesse kind of approach. So when I'm finesse fishing a jig, something that's like an eighth ounce, maybe a quarter ounce, or maybe even lighter than that, um, I'm going to tend to want to go straight fluorocarbon in that scenario, Terry. So on my spinning reels, it's going to be, let's say, six or eight-pound fluorocarbon. I like the fluorocarbon because it's going to stink through the water column, Terry, which is going to give me a straight line of sight to that jig between the tip of my rod and where that jig is on the bottom of the lake. I'm not going to have any bow in it. There's not going to be any of that line floating on the surface of the water. You'd be amazed at how many of these real, real light strikes people miss when they're fishing with mono or even fishing with braid in that scenario because of that bow and that, that line floating on the surface, Terry. So fluorocarbon is going to be my choice for a finesse jig, Terry. Now, I couldn't agree more with almost everything you said. And the reason... I only use fluorocarbon on finesse bites on a spinning reel. It doesn't cast as far in a spinning reel, but for finesse jigging, especially from the boat, and another one I use the fluorocarbon for is uh, drop shotting. Yeah, absolutely, Terry. And to talk about Berkeley, you know, Berkeley makes the full line of fishing lines, and it just happens to be that's the line I always grew up using, and that's the stuff I like, Terry. Berkeley's got two or three different kinds of fluorocarbon out there that I like to utilize. On the spinning gear, Terry, it's going to be that fluorocarbon. It's going to be the XL that they make in the fluorocarbon. It's a little bit softer line. It comes off the spinning reel much better than the, the straight 100% fluorocarbon that they produce. If I'm going to put the fluorocarbon on something like a casting reel, Terry, it tends to be that I'm going heavier on that. So let's say 10, 12, 15, 17 pound test. I go to that Berkeley 100% fluorocarbon, that professional grade stuff. If I'm putting it on a spinning reel, Terry, and especially with fluorocarbon, I don't do any heavier than eight pound test fluorocarbon on a spinning reel because it will not cast effectively like you're talking about. But in that four, six or eight pound test, I like that, that Berkeley, that, that 100%, that XL fluorocarbon that they make. That's the stuff, Terry, right there. Ronnie, we got a little less than a minute left. Tell people where they can meet you this afternoon and they can talk fishing line and all kinds of things with you and Chad. 
Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk a lot about line, a lot about setting up the reels, that kind of thing, Terry. We will be at the Thornton location, the Sportsman's Warehouse in Thornton. We're going to start our presentation right around 2 o'clock. Uh, they usually run for an hour or two. We end up kind of doing an hour-long presentation and then chit-chatting for another hour with folks. So come on by. You get a chance to meet myself, meet Chad LaChance. Uh, we're, we're looking for questions. So bring questions. We will ask or answer any question you have about anything. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing some folks. Hopefully I'll see some listeners up there, Terry. All right, Ronnie, we'll, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. You and I got to get on the water soon. Sounds great, Terry. We'll do it as soon as my new boat shows up. Let's get it out on the lake. All right, good thing, Ronnie. We'll talk to you. See you later. Bye. Ronnie Castiglione, always a great contributor. We're going to wrap things up today, and if you're wondering why you're listening to us here at almost noon, it's because of our new summer hours. We're going to be, instead of 9 to 11, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is going to be on 10 to noon for the um, until the training camp starts. Just think Broncos training camp. When Broncos training camp starts, we will go back to our normal 9 to 11 spot, but we're going to do this. We wanted to accommodate the golf show, which is on from uh, 8 to 10, so we'll be 10 to noon. Follow us on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Here's what you're going to find out. Do we have any special guests coming up? Do you know one about the hour changes? You get a link to my column in the Denver Post on our Facebook page, which is Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You get links to our television programs we put up on YouTube on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. You get you get tackle talks. You get you'll get interviews that we podcast. We'll put links to those. So lots and lots of information. So you got to follow us. Don't forget we're also posting our trivia, which you can win great prizes. But you got to you got to get the answers off of Facebook. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We're gonna wrap it up. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in ESPN Sports on 104.3 The Fan.